With uncertainty over how US-Iran tensions will escalate from here, investors have taken, at least for the moment, a risk-off stance, with stock markets volatile, gold at a six-year high, and US Treasury yields rising. Oil prices have understandably spiked amid concerns over the potential disruption to Middle East supply. All in all, it's a delicate time for local, regional, and global economies. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, our future editor. How are you, Kelsey? Good. Good to be here. Good to have you. And we also have Robin Mills, CEO of Kamar Energy and a regular contributor to the page of the National. Robin, welcome. Thank you. Um, as I'm saying, the, as we're all thinking, perhaps uh, the biggest story um, in this region, perhaps for several months at least, um, is the fallout from the the U.S. killing of uh, General Qasem Soleimani, the head of the uh, Iranian Quds Force, um, and the subsequent retaliation most recently uh, from Iran in terms of missiles uh, hitting Iraq. Um, overall, there's a lot of anxiety, uh, not just in uh, Iraq, Iran, Washington, but also in Europe as well. Obviously, we're in the Gulf and we're, you know, we're sitting around thinking, what's next? What happens? Um, Robin, you've already started writing about potentially what the fallout could be for energy mar- markets. And maybe we start there. I mean, Iraq, Iraq is uh, the second largest OPEC producer, something like 4.8 million barrels per day. Um, is there a realistic possibility of, of its supply being disrupted in a major way? Well, yes, I think we've got to say that there is. Now, okay, there's, of course, a scenario where there's a de-escalation and, and the two sides kind of back down and perhaps there's some some minor uh threats on both sides but but it doesn't get any worse than this you know i guess that's what we hope for but the i think there certainly are realistic uh, scenarios hopefully not the most probable ones where iraqi production is seriously affected um and you could imagine uh for example that uh, there might be a serious deterioration in security in iraq uh, and fighting between different factions and uh, an attempts by iran to take a stronger grip possibly in the wake of a, of a withdrawal of us troops um, and that could affect oil production or facilities. Um, I think a second possibility would be uh, Iran trying to put more pressure on the US and the international community and, and uh, in uh, retaliation or, or in a seek of a, uh, escape from the sanctions of a tight to oil sanctions that, that it's under by hitting oil supply elsewhere. And again, a place that it could very easily do that would be Iraq. Um, it could be sabotage. It could be protests. Um, there are numerous ways that, that Iraq, Iran could shut down a lot of Iraqi production. Nearly all of Iraqi oil production is exported through a very narrow part of the uh, uh, of its axis, the sea, seaward axis on, on the Gulf. It's only a few kilometers across and, and right adjacent to Iranian waters. So so very, uh, very vulnerable and, and easy to block. Now, yes, Iraq is, is I guess, in principle... Uh, the government or most of the government is, is fairly Iran friendly. So that's um, somewhat of a kind of hostile action for, for Iran to take. But it is a way that it could make a big, uh, uh, have a big impact on the global oil market and, and cause trouble for uh, the countries that are sanctioning it. So because to me that that's, that would be a bit of a confusing thing for Iran to undercut supplies from Iraq. To me, they would probably go for the Strait of Hormuz or Saudi Arabia prior to doing something like that because it seems to go against their interests, given how aligned Iraq is with Iran. So can you explain to me a bit more why undercutting production out of Iraq would be a scenario that you would predict? Well, you know, I'm trying to think through the scenarios. And and what we've seen, I think, in this confrontation is that both sides, particularly Iran, have consistently tried to 
do the surprising thing and, and keep the, the opposition off balance, you know, and, and I think the, the, the missile and drone attacks on Amkaik uh, last year were an escalation that really nobody had really expected and, and it was a surprise how, how effective and well targeted they were. So if we try and think through what else could Iran do, of course there could be further attacks on, on energy infrastructure in the Gulf and something like Amkaik, that's a, that's a possibility. Um, but it is seems to me it's possible that Iran quite easily and without necessarily having to emerge from the shadows very much could could quite easily close down a lot of Iraqi oil production. Now, yes, that's harming a, a, an ally for sure, but it's also driving up oil prices and putting more political pressure, particularly on the US and, and, and on Donald Trump in, in the run up to, a, to a, his re-election campaign. Um, and that's something, you know, US drivers see pump prices rising that they tend to blame the the uh, the politicians in power and be pretty unhappy about it. Right. A possible deterrent for President Trump at this time actually would be rising oil prices, which I think is probably surprising to some listeners. But I also wonder, can you talk a little bit about um, this idea that Iran wants U.S. presence out of Iraq and how that might lead to sanctions and what that looks like? Can you explain sort of that landscape at the moment? Yes. Well, you know, Iran has obviously got a very strong influence in Iraq and um, and has tried to hamper the U.S. and 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 to push it out of Iraq ever since the the invasion in two thousand and three, uh, in various ways. And now it seems it could be closer than ever to that goal, um, because of the uh, the Iraqi anger over the uh, the killing, not so much of Soleimani, but particularly uh, of uh, of Abu Mahdi Mohandas, who was of course an Iraqi official uh, and a very prominent figure, um, linked to uh, linked to uh, Iranian supported but but Iraqi militias. Um, and you know, general anger at the the attack of by the, by the U.S. the perceived attack by the U.S. on on Iraqi sovereignty by carrying out an attack like like that, and there's been a lot of opposition to the U.S. military presence in the country, of course, for for a long time. And of course, the U.S. military had l- largely departed in 2011, and then was only called back in in 2014 to deal with ISIS. Um, so I think there's there's more Iraqi political pressure on on the U.S. to leave, and uh, although the U.S. doesn't particularly want to be chased out of Iraq. Of course, there also is Trump's promise to bring the troops home and stop getting involved in Middle Eastern wars and uh, and bringing troops out of Iraq, as we saw with the very precipitate withdrawal from uh, from northeastern Syria. Um, that's that's a policy turn that, that Trump might take. I mean, we talk about Iraq supply. If we're, we're still sort of trying to work out what the status of that is, and and sort of the bigger picture being that you know a sustained spike in oil prices is not good for global economic growth in general, um, and in fact is, is is not something that even producers in the Middle East would want. They want stable prices. What they're looking for, it's kind of in the '60s range. I think is that they're quite happy with. But if we go to to one aspect of of Iraqi production, which is uh, the Kurdish regional government in the North, which um, its actual main issues has been contention with Baghdad over uh, receipts of, of oil revenue and, and, and oil fields and access and, and whatnot. You've seen that the Iranian um, missile strike um, that came in overnight um, hit in Erbil and actually hit close to a base um, in the Erbil territory. And then the day before, Chevron said it was moving its US uh, staff out of the KRG. Now, the, the statement out of the KRG is, you know, we need de-escalation. We don't want anything. And actually, ironically, they've had a pretty decent relationship with, with Iran in terms of keeping things smooth. So if the KRG area is perceived to be somehow um, at risk, then that 
also heightens the risk profile for, for oil supply coming out of Iraq as well, when perhaps a week ago we might have thought, well, at least the KRG will be unaffected. Yeah, I, I'm less worried about the Kurdish region, to be honest. I mean, yes, there were these, these Iranian missile strikes that, as you say, landed near Erbil, apparently. Um, however, as far as we understand, you know, most of the oil companies are consider- continuing operations as normal. Yes, Chevron, of course, as a U.S. company, withdrew its its American staff, but it, but even so, it's still con- continuing with its uh, its locally based staff. Um, so I'm kind of less concerned about the possible impact on on production there. Um, I do see a risk of the breakdown of the deal that, that the Kurdish region had with Baghdad on on um, on the budget, and the Kurds were um, supposed to be transferring a certain amount of oil. Um, to the to the uh, federal authorities through their, their pipeline to Turkey and in return getting a share of the federal budget. Now, uh, Adil Abdelmehdi, the Iraqi prime minister, or kind of acting prime minister, um, had been quite friendly and quite, I think, uh, forgiving on the Kurds in, in, in this deal um, and been prepared to pay their budget, uh, their slice of the budget, even though they weren't uh, delivering the oil to the, the federal side. Um, now, you know, a new prime minister may, may not one to one of that deal. Um, now, in which case, uh, either you know the the oil, uh, certainly some of the federal oil transfers that go through the Kurdish region would be cut off, and then the Kurdish region itself would face a a renewed economic crisis if it's not getting its share of the budget. So that is something uh, that is that is a significant risk. Uh, more broadly, for supply, the UAE uh, Energy Minister. Sohail al-Mazrui was making uh, very reassuring uh, statements in Abu Dhabi this morning saying that don't worry about the supply. Um, We still had a steady supply out of this region during the long Iran-Iraq war. Um, The UAE, of course, uh, together with Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, you know, leading producer in terms of the uh, alliance uh, to stabilize oil prices. But also they've always said throughout, as you mentioned, the, you know, the Saudi uh, facilities being hit in September, but also we had other incidents last Last year, there's always been this this idea that there can be um, a sort of loosening of, of of production in countries like Saudi, Russia, the UAE to fill any any kind of disruption. Yes, and if there was a loss of some production out of Iraq, then between them, Saudi, UAE, Russia, um, and to some extent Kuwait could could produce more and, and could fill the gap. Now, if we lost all of Iraqi exports, it's a pretty extreme case. Um, they wouldn't be able to fill all of that, but but you know, a more likely case would be some disruption, which yes, Saudi and and the UAE and the others could could step up and and, and fill the gap. Obviously, that's assuming that there's no other um, serious disruptions to production elsewhere. Uh, Saudi and, and Kuwait recently agreed to reopen the neutral zone between them. That has about a, half a million barrels per day of capacity. It'll come back slowly, but by the end of this year, that should be fully back. So that that does add a bit of a cushion as well. What about China and all this? Um, a big customer. Of, of Middle Eastern crude, um, Asia in particular, that's where most of the loads go. Um, China is not going to be happy to see this level of instability, um, whether it's Iran or Iraq. Um, you know, can to what to what extent do you think China will be very very focused on on keeping that stable supply? So yes, absolutely. You know, China is a very uh, important player in this, and one that's very concerned with the stable supply of oil from the Gulf. I mean, it it is by far the biggest customer overall for, for Gulf oil. And it's cultivated a good relation over the years with, with Iran. It's basically the only main continuing buyer of, of Iranian oil at the moment. Um, but it also has very good relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and probably you could say in the past few years, those have even got closer or they've developed more than its ties with Iran. 
it, and it has obviously it's an important customer for the UAE and, and the other Gulf countries as well. Um, so, yes, China is concerned about this. China has always been wary not to be drawn into Middle East affairs too much politically. It wants to buy oil and uh, and sell goods and sell its services to, to the Gulf, um, but not to get drawn into the politics, which it, it sees as really a, a no-win situation, as long as the US has been providing security and, and, and guaranteeing the flow of oil. If the US is not going to play that role, um, then I think... Uh, Obviously, that opens some questions about if anybody will or, or who will. Um, and is, is there going to be a more multilateral approach to, to security in the Gulf or is it going to be a regionally led approach or, 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 or what? Uh, I certainly don't think China wants to step into that role and, 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 and if it does at all, not, not yet. Um, and that, again, is an extreme case. I mean, the US still has a very strong presence in the Gulf and, and is unlikely to draw that down in a hurry. Um, but still, if we think in, in the longer term, I think at least it's something that the, uh, the Chinese must have in the back of their minds. And another metric we're able to look at now is actually the Saudi Aramco uh, share price, which has been down 2% in the first week of 2020 on the back of these rising tensions. I'm wondering, what is Saudi Aramco, what do, what do you see as in terms of the risk profile that it's seeing in the next quarter or the next year in terms of its share price and you know investor sentiment? Well, obviously, Aramco, I think the, the concern is over a repeat of, of something like the Al-Qaeda attacks or, or some other attacks that might be more serious and that would cut its production for an extended period. Um, and then there's, then there's just a general macroeconomic sentiment towards Saudi Arabia as an investment destination, which is, is obviously if there's severe instability in the Gulf, hope there won't be, but uh, that, that, that the risk of that is, is, um, is not encouraging. Um, that's partly outweighed by the rise in the price of oil, of course. And, you know, if... If we have continue to have somewhat higher prices for oil and no other disruption, Aramco will benefit. Um, but it seems that the, the uh, investors are a bit more concerned about the risk to its production rather than a, a short term boost in prices. Aramco IPO is a really good ex- illustration that you're bringing up, Kelsey, because I mean the the debate and the build up to the IPO was about uh, the attitude of international investors and and what price they would be willing uh, to. To give essentially, and there was a lot of debate, and ultimately, um, from everything we understand, the, the 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 bulk of the of the buying in the IPO process was actually regional investors, local investors, who perhaps do not demand quite as much of a risk premium um, from a state producer, Ramco. Yeah, I mean, down two percent actually, I think, is a pretty muted reaction given how hysterical uh, the attention has been on the region over the last week and a half, to my mind. Yeah. And I guess there's a broader point, which is that in the past, um, at least a decade ago before the financial crisis, a lot of uh, the development, economic development, financial development in uh, the Gulf, wider region, was the carrot was, well, if you if you do X reform, if you do X thing, you will bring in more international investors. You bring in more international investors, you bring in more liquidity, you get a better price for your assets, you know, creates wealth, creates jobs. But the last few years, um, the the carrot has actually been uh, much more localized, if you like, which is, if we do not do these changes, we will not be able to sustain growth. And we will not be able to make those jobs happen. And, you know, future generations in a very young region um, will really, really suffer. And so I think none of this um, as, as, as as potentially far-reaching consequences of, of what's happening at the moment between the U.S. and Iran and what it could happen to Iraq and, and the wider Gulf. I mean, longer term, n- nothing really changes. And actually, perhaps the biggest risk has always been the same one, 
um, when I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Robin and, and, and Kelsey, the, the same one, which is if you do not diversify your economies fast enough uh, before, you know, peak oil or, you know, before, you know, people shift, uh, consumer habits change or whatever it is that is, is creating that sort of end that we everyone expects will happen, mm-hmm. then your right. economies will the really greatest, suffer. The greatest existential threat is diversification or lack thereof, not yeah. any outside bad actor or the, you know, unpredictable reaction. Or, of or a loss of international investors. Yeah, well, look, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right, Kelsey, that the fall in, in the Aramco share price was fairly small, given the risks that it faces. And if the investors were primarily international investors, they would probably have been more scared. Um, investors in this region are, uh, I guess, more comfortable uh, or at least familiar with, with a certain level of risks uh, and at least kind of evaluating and, and weighing those in, in a more level-headed way. Um so that uh, you know, that explains that the the fall, you know, the fall, the fall wasn't greater, but but it indeed points to the the, the wider issue that you raise of foreign direct investment, and, and that's a key thing for all of the Gulf countries. But it's a key part of the Saudi national transformation plan, and it's got to be said that the past couple of years of, of FDI have been have been pretty weak, um, and previously when there has been big FDI, it's tended to be in the energy sector. Um, in new refineries and petrochemical plants and with, with big joint venture partners and so on. Um, so attracting serious FDI into the non-oil sector is has proved challenging. Um, and yes, of course, there have been you know, various economic reforms and, and improvements to the, uh, the investment climate. Um, but if that's battling against a background of, of instability that tends to put off investors, that's, that's not helpful. And particularly investors who are looking at the region for the first time, not very familiar, uh, and you know they see the headlines on on CNN or whatever, and that, that, that's you know, their first impression of the region without getting the familiarity that uh, the people in the region have with it. I mean, we started the year on a, a kind of fear of conflict footing, um, but the you know very much as we we look towards the end of 2020, if we if you know the three three of us, four if we include Arthur, our producer, are sitting here, sort of September, October, November, um, that's when Expo 2020 is happening in Dubai, and already. Um, officials here in, in the UAE, the leadership is, is saying, you know, this is a preparation for the 50th anniversary of the UAE. And you mentioned Saudi Arabia, big, you know, reform plans, Vision 2030. Um, they, they're not the only countries in the Gulf working towards these things. I mean, certainly, there's a lot of drivers um, internally, locally, that w- that should continue to, to move things along, even if there is this sort of, even if things stay as they are, um, and there is no further escalation between Iran and the US, there will continue to be that fear in the back back of the mind, I guess, that at any moment something else could happen. So really, I think we need to focus on sort of the more local drivers that are independent of that, if you like. Yes, and, and there needs to be, um, as you say, the, the diversification. Um, and if there's, a, if there's always a certain perceived risk of conflict, if that doesn't ever turn into something more serious and uh, in the Gulf, then, then at least the, the local investors and the local economy can, can look past that. But I think there's a wider point, which is really um, the diversification and the economic development of the Gulf and of, of the wider region is uh, is a vital thing for combating instability. Um, you know, we see a lot of the, the problems if we look at Lebanon or if we look at Algeria or Iraq, these protests, major protests last year, a lot of it was about poor governance, corruption, lack of economic development, poor government services, you know, lack of electricity, um, unemployment, all these kind of issues that matter to uh, to the uh, new generations, uh, the young generations in particular. Um, 
And if those issues aren't, aren't addressed, then these countries are going to struggle with with instability. You know, no matter how how decisive and strong the government is, if it can't offer people much much better prospects. You know, conversely, if there is diversification and there are stronger economic links between the different countries in the region. Um, then that's more positive for having productive relations between them rather than, than hostile ones. So uh, sort of loosely with energy, but more on the sustainable renewables front, um, it's going to be a really, really big week in Abu Dhabi. Uh, we have the uh, Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. We also have the World Future Energy Summit. We have the Sustainability Forum. We have the Sustainability Financing event as well. I mean, there, I mean honestly, there is a lot of people coming. Um, to to Abu Dhabi. We're going to be very busy, aren't we, Kelsey? No shortage of things to do in the coming week, for sure. So, uh, interestingly, there's also uh, the Atlantic Council has its Global Energy Forum in Abu Dhabi, which is sort of ahead of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. Uh, the Nationals Energy Correspondent, uh, Jennifer Niana, spoke to Randy Bell of the Atlantic Council, asking him what the viewpoint was uh, for the energy sector, given that in the United States, we are in an election year. Let's have a listen now. What are the impacts on uh, the U.S. energy industry if there's another Trump victory or if there's a more uh, if there's a left leaning Democratic candidate uh, who would be the next president of the United States? So if Trump wins, then I think you'll see a continuation of current U.S. energy policy, but perhaps even more intense. Um, so that's a, the deregulatory agenda in the United States um, and uh, a lack of action on climate change. Um, ironically, you, then you will start seeing more leadership on climate change coming from companies, whether they're big tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft, or even oil and gas companies, which are actually lobbying for um, increased methane regulations. Um, uh, they see that as an important part of their future is managing methane. Um, so if if Trump wins, uh, um, you'll just see more of the same. Um, uh, if a Democrat wins, there's a range of different perspectives on uh, the future of oil, uh, energy, and climate in the United States. But it's worth thinking of these policies more as climate policies than as energy policies, particularly as you go farther to the left. Now, um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have said they will ban fracking. Uh, that's actually really quite difficult. Now, I know that um, in the Gulf, there are some people who would love to see the U.S. ban fracking because uh, it would drive prices back up. Um, but it's actually very, very challenging for, the, uh, for the, president, the president to ban fracking. Now, what they can do is uh, ban uh, production on federal lands, which, uh, which would reduce uh, the supply. But um, but there's a lot of production that happens on non-federal land. So the U.S. would still be a major producer. There are also some questions about how you'd implement that that I don't think have been resolved yet. It would require um, an act of Congress. And there's it's extraordinarily unlikely that you would have the political uh, will in the Congress, just given the makeup of uh, who's in power now, who's up for election, et cetera, to actually get that done. So that's really uh, off the table. And these these promises are are actually more uh, for campaign purposes than, than real. However, you will definitely see uh, increased regulation, increased uh, scrutiny, increased, increased focus on climate change um, as opposed to the Trump narrative of energy dominance. Uh, it may become harder for uh, U.S. oil and gas companies to build new projects in the United States, to build new LNG export terminals, pipelines will become a real challenge. Um, the, the goal ultimately is to um, 
remove fossil fuels from the system. Um, that's a that's a long and slow process, but you can see you would see efforts made uh, made to towards those ends. That was Randy Bell of the Atlantic Council talking about uh, his viewpoints on what could be the effects um, on the energy sector uh, with the U.S. potentially. Uh, bring Donald Trump back to the White House or perhaps getting somebody else in. So it's 2020, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you while you're here, it being an election year in the U.S., what is America's kind of future energy landscape, climate change action landscape, if we're facing a Donald Trump win or we're looking at an Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, you know, a Democrat, Democratic nominee winning the presidential race? Well, sure. Look, I think the first thing we should say is there's, there's, there's major trends in the U.S. energy sector which are independent of, of any presidential candidate. And, and, and any president, no matter how, how radical and volatile, has only so much power and, and only so much ability to affect the uh, a slow-moving federal bureaucracy plus the, the power of the market. Right. So coal is on its way out in the U.S. Cheap natural gas and, and, and increasingly cheap renewable energy uh, are just pushing coal out. Coal Coal, U.S. coal plants are not very efficient. They're getting old. They're being retired. And, and all that Trump can do is slow that down to, to a limited extent. Um, now, yes, if there's a Democrat in, in, the, in the White House, likely they'll put on some more, more environmental restrictions and, and coal will be phased out quicker. But uh, coal is on its way out, whatever happens. Um, the, uh, there's obviously the, the international dimension, you know, what, uh, as, and really as we've just been discussing, what would a Trump term two mean for uh, the Middle East in particular, and uh, and you know, possibly more volatility, and, and and therefore higher oil prices and more difficulties with supply. Uh, but but what a democratic uh, president would do in in the Middle East, you know, very hard to say. And I think the different candidates, obviously, uh, Bernie Sanders would have a, have a very different foreign policy from a Joe Biden. Uh, so um, Joe Biden would be much more traditional and uh, maintain traditional U.S. allies and trying to calm things down and so on. But so for me, it's a little bit more the matter about kind of nuances and, and shifts in direction rather than rather than dramatic changes. However, we've got to think, you know, what could a president mean in the long term uh, and the seeds that, that a president could plant in terms of, of particularly environmental climate action, investment in new technologies and so on. Um, that could be consequential well beyond the ter- a single or even, even two terms of a, of a new president. Um, and that, I think, is, is one of the areas of a big difference between a between a Donald Trump and a, and a Democratic president. You know, one in, very interesting thing I find here is that the um, U.S. has somehow kind of blundered into passing some very attractive incentives for carbon capture and storage. So for taking carbon dioxide out of industrial facilities and power plants and putting it in the ground. And... Um, and that now has some very attractive tax benefits. And you've seen several companies, and recently Occidental, a couple of days ago, announced a, a, another commitment to a large carbon capture facility. So that actually is, is probably rather unintended by the Trump administration, but actually a, a very strong pro-environmental policy. It benefits the oil and gas companies too, but it is it is good for the environment. So we'll see, will a, would a Democrat keep that or, or even extend that program. So, you know, there's even within the complexity of policy, you know, even a president who isn't environmentally minded can sometimes blunder into, into the right thing. Uh, Robin Mills, CEO of Kama Energy, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Kelsey Warner, also thank you to you. Thank you. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Saudi Arabia's non-oil private sector economy remained on a growth footing in December on the back of new orders and an increase in employment, according to the latest PMI data. 
Uber completed the $3.1 billion acquisition of Kareem's businesses across the Middle East. And Samsung Electronics set out its latest Internet of Things strategy, describing it as an age of experience. That was at the CES 2020 Technology Conference in Las Vegas. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this show, please do subscribe or leave a review. All that remains is to thank our production team, uh, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Thank you all for listening. Please join us again next time.